Thanks for checking out this sermon at New Beginnings. As a church, we exist to become an authentic, biblical community. That transforms our city and impacts the world. With the gospel of Jesus Christ. We want to make you aware of a few things before we begin. First, we would love to connect with you on our website. NBBCTX.org. There you can find more information about who we are. Additional resources and links to our social media network. As well as an opportunity to give. To what God is doing in and through our church. We hope you enjoy this message. Today is, in fact, the third week of a sermon series that we launched at the beginning of our summer entitled, Who's Your One? The big idea behind this sermon series is that you and I, as a family of faith, would each one of us identify uh, one person that we would be willing to make an investment into their lives, uh, have a conversation with them, and personally share the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ and invite them by faith to respond and to be uh, saved. And this is something that we are pursuing uh, together collectively as a church family uh, because what would it look like? Imagine what it would look like for our church, our communities, our families, our schools, our workplaces if we could see the gospel transform uh, uh, our lives and we do so through a personal investment, one person uh, to an another. And, and as we started this sermon series, we did so building off the case of what scholars tell us is the great commission of Jesus. You all are familiar with the passage in Matthew chapter 28, where just before his ascension into heaven, Jesus gives his final instruction, like parting words. So parents, you know that just before you're going to leave town or go out for a few hours, you give last minute instructions uh, to your kids. And, and of all the things you're going to say, it's just these last instructions that you need them to hold on to the most. And so the final instructions that Jesus gives to his church sound like this. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been granted to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations and baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teach them to observe all that I have commanded you. And he promises to be with us until the end of the age. It is a powerful uh, parting instruction that Jesus provides to his church and it reminds us of the why God has called us to go and the how we are going to do it, which informs the what it is that he has entrusted for us to do. Listen, why do we go and share our faith? Well, ready? Because Jesus said so. Like we don't argue with God because God has told us what we are called and in Christ equipped to do. And oh, by the way, He's promised us to be with us. So the very credentials that we need to have every conversation we're going to have, we have in the name of God's Son, Jesus Christ. Now, how are we going to go? Well, we go in the singular name of God. So when we go, we don't, don't go and tell our best uh, uh, stories. We don't tell about all the things that we've accomplished. We don't say all the hills that we have climbed and all the uh, territory that we have taken. We say, we're here in the name of God through Jesus Christ. I am who I am because God showed up and changed me. So that is the how we go. And listen, what do we go to do? Make disciples. 
This is the calling for all Christians everywhere all of the time. This is not unique to New Beginnings. This is the command of God for His church. We make disciples. So coaches, you make disciples on your sports teams. Teachers, you make disciples in your classrooms. Parents, you make disciples in your homes. Uh, Industry leaders, you make disciples in your offices. This is what we do. Students, you make disciples in your classrooms and lunchrooms and on your teams. This is what we do. We make disciples. And then question becomes, okay, well, if, if that's true, and then our church is saying this happens through one-on-one investments, one person to another, then how are we called to do it? Well, this is why we are taking our time this summer to look at all of the biblical examples that we have of personal evangelism efforts. What does it look like when Jesus has a one-on-one engagement with someone who is far from God? What does it look like when a follower of Jesus has a one-on-one engagement with someone who is far from God? And, and so a couple of weeks ago, we examined the story the very familiar children's story of Zacchaeus. And uh, we saw that Zacchaeus, who was a chief tax collector, the description being given that he was a man who was not only far from God, but he was disliked by his own people because of the way he treated his own people. And so Zacchaeus saw Jesus and believed enough in who he was based on what he had seen Jesus do that, that he believed there might be hope Uh, for him. And so he climbs up into this sycamore tree, and the Bible says as Jesus was passing by, he looked up in that tree, and he saw Zacchaeus right where he was, and he saw Zacchaeus just as he was, and the Bible says that his life changed forever. It was a good reminder to each and every one of us that, listen, you don't clean yourself up and get to God, but rather as God is coming by, he sees you where you are. And watch this, he sees you as you are, and that's when he shows up and does his good his good work. And so that leads us to the conversation that we're going to have today. Another familiar Bible story. Uh, traditionally, scholars tell us this story is most often referred to as the prodigal son. But the word prodigal is an interesting word. It actually means a person who spends money in a recklessly extravagant way. Some of you are married to a prodigal, okay? And as we will see today, that is certainly true of the primary central character in our story. But let me contend with you this morning. I think if Connor could name this story, rather than calling it the prodigal son, I would rename it and call it the lost son. And here's why. Because our story today is the third consecutive story offered here in the Gospel of Luke that deals with God's interaction, God's desire, God's heart for people that are lost and who are far from Him. It is the third consecutive parable on the subject of lostness. You are familiar in Luke chapter 15 verses 1 through 7, uh, the Bible describes the parable of the shepherd who goes after the one uh, lost sheep and he leaves the 99 sheep in the middle of the pasture in the safety and security of their home and he goes after the wandering sheep uh, and the Bible says that there's great celebration when he finds that sheep and brings him back into the fold. And then it says in verses 8 through 10 that there was a woman who lost a single coin and that she turned her house upside down, her schedule inside out until she could find that lost coin. It wasn't that she lost all of her money, but she lost a single coin and cared greatly about it because the Bible wants us to see and expresses the idea that there is value or worth associated with that thing. And it leads us to the story we're going to read today. 
the story of the lost son. So if you have a copy of God's Word, let me encourage you uh, to turn to Luke chapter uh, 15. And again, when we go back to the subject of personal evangelism and our calling to identify our one person that we are willing to seek after, to serve in Jesus' name, and to share his love with them, the entire point of these three consecutive stories in Luke chapter 15 describe for us how much God cares for those who are dead in their sins. And the language of the Bible is lost here, and that is those who are lost from God. And, and listen, the value of something uh, lost is best expressed in the effort that we make to find it. You with me? The value of something that is lost is best expressed in the effort that we make to find it. I'll give you an example. We are in the process of packing boxes and moving and and uh, getting all of our things uh, together. And my kids have uh, a plethora of noisy toys. You know what I mean? Parents, like the toys that don't seem to have an off button. And, uh, and so we will inevitably be moving something around, and my, one of my kids will find a noisy toy and say, oh, I, I've been looking for that. Uh-uh. You haven't. Because do you see the dust bunnies that are on it? That thing's been under there for six and a half years. You've never looked for that. And now that we've found it, I think I want to lose it into that black filing cabinet on wheels at the end of the driveway that has a lid that moves up and down. That's where I'm going to file that. But the reason we don't pursue finding that is because it doesn't have great value to us. Seven years ago, when we moved into our house in Longview, we were looking at the house just prior to purchasing it. And uh, Libby couldn't get the wheelchair through the house, so I'm carrying her around. And while we're car- I'm carrying Libby around, at some point, went upstairs, downstairs, in the front yard, out the backyard, looked all over the house. When I went to load her back into the car, I had lost my wedding band. And so I buckled her in, knocked awkwardly on the door, went back into the house and tried to find it, went into the yard, tried to find it, couldn't find it anywhere. In fact, I'm not sure we didn't actually buy the house just so I could look better for the wedding ring was lost in the house. But when we moved in, we tore the house up before we put any furniture down or landscaped anything in the front or backyard. I looked everywhere for that wedding band. Do you know why? Because it had great value to me. So the noisy toy we don't care about, but the wedding band... We care greatly about. Well, the difference is things we care about and have value to us, we express that by the effort that we give to find them when they're lost. So, family, listen to me. As we get ready to read this great story, it is the climax of three consecutive stories about the heart of God in pursuing those who are lost. If you've ever wondered whether or not you matter to God, Just think, if you're willing to turn over the cushions and try to find a wedding band, how much more is God willing to turn over the circumstances of your lives, the events of your family, the course of your life, because he is seeking to find you? So this is where we're going to be, Luke chapter uh, 15. As we read this story today, uh, I'm going to make four observations, offer those to you in an effort to help grow us in a passion for personal evangelism. Luke chapter 15, starting in verse number 11. If you're there, say, I got it. Here we go. And he said, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, 
Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. If you mark or highlight in your Bibles, I'm going to ask you to circle those two words that give me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. The first observation that I want us to make that I pray helps grow us in a passion for personal evangelism is this. Sin always takes, but God graciously gives. Sin takes, that's what it does, but God gives, that's who he is. Listen, we don't know the amount of this boy's inheritance, but the sinful rebellion of this son cost him so much. The evidence being that as we continue reading here in a few minutes, that when the son comes to the end of himself and he recognizes his wrong, he assumes in order for him to be made right, the only role possibly reserved for him within his family would be that of a servant. And why is that? Well, because sin always takes. Sin always takes takes. That's what it does. It takes our life. Look at me. It takes our joy. It takes our possessions. It takes our people. That's what sin does. It steals. It takes. It is demanding in the way in which it takes over and controls us. In fact, I've heard it said before that sin will take you farther than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you ever want to pay. Why? Because that's what it does. It takes. I mean, just think about the demanding way in which this son uh, insisted that he give, be given his family inheritance early. It doesn't make as much sense to us uh, because of the way in which we transactionally deal with family uh, uh, wealth. But listen, in the first century in the ancient Near East, this is the equivalent of the son wishing death upon his father. Because the only way for this son to be entitled to any inheritance would be for his father to die and pass that on. So when the son demands, he doesn't say, Dad, if you have a few extra bucks. He doesn't say, Dad, could we uh, uh, maybe sell a little corner of the, is there any chance you could make me alone? He doesn't, no, Father, give me. He's demanding that his dad give him something that isn't yet rightly his. Why? Because that's what sin does. Sin takes and takes and takes. And it demands and demands and demands. And when we are caught in sin, we will act the same way as the son. And listen, contrast that then with God and this father who graciously gives. Like it isn't lost on me that everything this son has, including all of the wealth that the Bible says he's squandered in reckless living. Like everything that he's got, he only has because his dad graciously gave it to him. Like think about that. Like even the money that he had to go spend in sin on reckless living, he only has because his dad was gracious. But isn't that true of us? Like Anything we have in our life that we choose with our resources, with our actions, or with our thoughts, if we choose to, to uh, expend them sinfully, we only have them because God gave them graciously. Like I was thinking about this the other day. Uh, we've taken our kids to Dave and Buster's. 
because we're gluttons for punishment. And so, uh, and, and so I, I can't tell you how many times we've gone, and, uh, and after dinner, you know, the kids want to play in the arcade, and so you give them some money, and they'll go get tokens. And uh, my son Coleman is a, uh, a, a, a ticket guy. Right, so he'll spend seventeen fifty on a, a, a plastic ring spider that costs nine cents, because he's trying to earn tickets. So we'll give him money so they can go get tokens, so they can play games, right? And we give him all that money so that they can do that. And then, do you know how many times? Listen, I know this is just my kids because I'm raising sinners and you're not, but my kids <laughs> will come back to me and and demand more money. I'm like everything you had that you just squandered. Congrats on the plastic spider ring I gave you. But brothers and sisters, look at me. That's what we do with God. That's what sin does. Sin takes, and our God graciously gives. And sometimes we uh, use what he has graciously given, and we take it to spend it on sin. And it's a good reminder that as we have conversations with people that are far from God or as we ourselves evaluate where we stand with God, that we come to the recognition that that's what sin does. But listen, that's also what God does. Let's keep reading. Pick it up in verse 14. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country and he began to be in need. So he went and he hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his field to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. I think it's important that we just see in context. And Jesus is making a point here to his audience that, you know, this is what sin does. Sin will not only break us physically, as it has this boy, he's hungry. It'll break us relationally. The Bible says he's in a country far away, and no one will give him anything there. But did you know, sin breaks you spiritually. So for this boy to hire himself out to work for someone else feeding pigs, he would have defiled himself ceremonially and spiritually by working with these animals, deeming himself before God as a good Jew unclean. Because that's what sin does. So he was at the bottom financially, physically, relationally, and spiritually. And the Bible says, verse 17, but when he came to himself, if you mark or highlight in your Bibles, that's your phrase. He said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. Which leads me to my second observation. We repent, but God redeems. I love the language of God's word. The Bible says here that the son came to himself. It's the idea that the son recognized his sin and his need to be rescued from it. He's hungry, he's broke, he's covered in pig slop, and he finally comes to the recognition that he is lost. And listen... Everybody has to get to the place of admitting that they're lost before they're actually ready to be found. You've got to get to the place where you recognize you're lost before you're ready to be found. 
Otherwise, you just keep driving in a circle convinced that you'll work your way out. So a few months ago, Mary and I went to dinner with some friends in Tyler. And uh, the couple we went with, he's from Longview. So he was driving. And as we're coming back from Tyler and driving through Kilgore, uh, somewhere around Country Tavern, you can turn left. And there's a back road, I guess, to get you into uh, Longview. He missed the turn. He knew it was there, but he missed the turn, and he turned somewhere else. And so he starts driving at night down these back roads, and it's dark, and you can't see anything. And after a few minutes, I'm like, hey, bro, this doesn't feel right. I think we're lost. He's like, no, man, I know somewhere. I mean, I missed that one, but I think you can jump up here and get on it again. And I'm like, all right, let's hustle because it's late, and I'm tired. So then a few minutes later, his wife's like, hey, babe, puts a hand on the shoulder. Y'all know that, fellas, when she just gently puts the hand on your shoulder. Yeah. So, hey, babe, I, th- I think we're lost. He's like, we're not lost. Finally, a few more minutes later, I was like, hey, dude, we're lost. Get your phone out. I'm ready to go home. And then he's like, yeah, you know what? Let me find that. We may be. But it wasn't until he was ready to admit and acknowledge that he's lost that he's then ready to actually be found. Some of us need to come to the end of ourselves. It's not that you're not lost. It's that you're not ready to admit it. The Bible says he came to himself. He was covered in pig slop. He's broken relationally, financially, physically, spiritually, and he finally comes to the end of himself. I wonder how many of you are covered in mess. You're in a relational mess. You're in a financial mess. You're in a personal mess. You're in a physical mess. And, and maybe today is the Spirit of God not, not pleading with you. Get, just get to the end of yourself. Like everybody around you knows you're lost. It's time for you to admit it so that you're ready to be found. Because think how cool this story must have been after this boy's repentance takes place. Because ours is a God who redeems that which is broken. I mean, can you imagine like the testimony for that kid? He could have said, maybe he's, maybe he's standing before friends and family, and he's like, you know what, I think all of y'all know. I kind of went radio silent for a few years. You didn't see any posts on Facebook. Everybody kind of wondered what had happened. Man, I, I cashed in, and I went nuts. And uh, I just living in sin, just operating out of the flesh, and it was a dark season for me. And I, I finally got to a place where I was low. Like, I was discouraged. It was dirty. I was I was sick, and I came to the end of myself. It was in that place that God showed up. What a cool story for him to be able to tell. Why? Because he let Jesus be the one that writes it, right? One of my favorite things to do is when couples come to me in crisis and we need to have counseling, I get to have a conversation with them, and sometimes, if it's appropriate, I'm able to say, after we engage them with the gospel, remind them of the hope and truth of God's grace, I'm able to say, hey, listen, um, in the next couple of weeks, I want to introduce you to another couple, and, and they're a few seasons removed from being in the same place you are today. And they sat on the same couch, confessing the same things, and I have watched God do a redemptive work in their life, and, and they would be able to tell you today that the only reason that they have hope and that their family has been restored is because Jesus showed up right where they were. I mean, how cool is that? So look at me. Some of you 
Some of you, you're worried that God won't use your story. But that's exactly what he's going to do when you admit that you're lost. That's what he does. He writes redemption stories. Some of my closest friends have incredible stories of redemption. You've heard me talk about my own. I'm embarrassed for the way in which I lived my life. Two-faced, operating one way in front of one group and another way in front of another until I got called to the carpet July 29th of 1998 and God changed me. I'm not proud of that, but I am so grateful for Jesus who's written a story of redemption on the other side of it. And he wants to do the same with you. Some of you are driving in circles covered in pig slop. We smell it, and you know it. The question is, are you going to admit that you're lost so that you can be ready to be found? Let's keep reading. Verse 20, and he arose, and he came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, let this sink in, his father saw him and had compassion. If you mark or highlight in your Bibles, there's your phrase. And he ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. What a moment. Which leads me to my third observation that we look in, but God looks out. The son comes to his senses, the Bible says. He came to himself. He repents of his sin. He confesses to his dad what he has done is wrong. He asks him to forgive. But the son then believes that his sin is so grievous against both God and his father that it makes him unworthy to be called a son, which is what we do. Our natural inclination when under conviction and burdened by sin is to look inward and all that we have done wrong and to deem ourselves as unworthy. I think I've shared this with you before, but the toughest battleground in my life is not the six inches in front of my face, but the six inches between my ears. And do you know how many times that that voice in my head begins to whisper and deem me unworthy? Man, if they only knew. If they only knew what you've done, if they only knew what you thought, if they only knew where you've been. That's six inches, that battleground. I'm my own worst enemy. And listen, then on those rare moments of gospel clarity where I'm able to say, no, 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 the Bible declares that I've been washed white as snow. The Bible declares that he who began a good work in me will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. No, no, no. When I have those moments of gospel clarity, then the enemy starts throwing darts at me. And he starts whispering the same thing. He's like, man, if they knew, if those people knew, they'd never listen to a word you said. Man, if they knew, if that couple knew where you were, they'd never listen to a word that you encouraged. Man, if they knew. But here's the deal. God does know. He absolutely knows. And the Bible says, while I'm in the midst of looking in at all that I have done wrong and and condemning myself as being unworthy, That while I was still a long way off, the father saw the son and had compassion. Listen, how would he have seen him from a long way away if he wasn't looking for him for a long time before? How does he seem way out there except that he's not looking way out there? 
Some of you are far away from God, and I'm telling you, the Bible declares that he is like a dad on a front porch, and he's wandering back and forth, and you got to believe that he's shielding his eyes because he's intently looking in the horizon waiting for you to come home. He's not, that's how God is. He's looking. He's waiting. He saw him from a long way off because he was looking a long way away. I read a cool story this week, in 2014, the Australian Coast Guard was deployed because some scuba divers had taken a uh, chartered a vessel and gone offshore for some scuba diving. And uh, they anchored their boat and went down uh, to dive. And when they surfaced, their boat had broken loose of its anchor and was nowhere to be found. It had drifted a long way from where they were in their dive. Looking in the distance, they found a sandbar. And they were able to swim, um, uh, depleting their oxygen in its entirety over to that sandbar. And they were able to climb up on top and then scratch out in the sand itself three uh, letters, S-O-S. Because the boat was discovered hours later, those stranded divers were waiting and waiting for rescue to show up. Finally, when the boat was discovered and the Coast Guard was deployed, a helicopter that was, surf- uh, that was uh, covering that area of the ocean uh, uh, flew over that sandbar. And unable to see the divers themselves, they were able to make out the inscription that had been etched in the sand, and they were able to send help, and those divers were rescued and saved. Do you know the only reason that they were found? It's because somebody was looking. So listen, brothers and sisters, I want you to know our God is searching. I mean, he's looking. He is scanning. He's moving back and forth. He's got his eyes up and he's checking the horizon because he is begging in Christ that you might come home. I don't know where you are. I don't know what you're covered in or how far away you think you've gone. I don't know what you've squandered, what it's cost you, how broke you are relationally, physically, personally, or spiritually. But I know that our our God is like a dad on the porch. And he's scanning the horizons waiting for you to get back. Which leads me to my last one. Pick it up in verse 22. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe. And put it on him, and put a ring on his hand, and shoes on his feet. And bring the fattened calf, and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. Circle that word, celebrate. For this my son was dead, and is alive again. He was lost, and is found. And they began to celebrate. The last observation that I would make about this particular story of the lost son that I hope is an encouragement to you as we engage in personal evangelism is this, that our sin separates us, but our God celebrates us. Our sin separates us. That's the reality that we don't like to talk about much, but is true when it comes to our sin and the, the distance that it creates and causes between us and God. The Bible says if we're not alive in Christ We're dead in our sins. It doesn't say we're dying in our sins or we're floundering in our sins or we're on our way out in our sins. It says we're dead. And this is the idea that our sin has us in condition of being spiritually dead or the language of Luke 15, that we're lost. 
But it says that by God's grace, we are made spiritually alive. Or again, in the language of Luke 15, that we're found. Listen to how Paul expresses the same idea in Ephesians chapter 2. In verses 4 through 5, Paul writes and says, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. So, listen, what does that grace look like? If our sin separates us, the Bible says that we're lost or dead. But God's grace is what finds us and gives us new life. What does that grace look like? You ready? It looks like a dad standing on a porch, staring in the distance, waiting for a kid to come home. It looks like a woman who's lost a coin and is willing to turn her life and her schedule upside down because it's valuable and she wants to find it. It looks like a shepherd who's willing to leave the safety of his sheep to go after the one that just keeps wandering away. That's what grace looks like. That's how God sees you and me. And the Bible says in each one of those stories that when the sheep gets found, there's celebration. That when the coin gets found, there's celebration. And when the son, the lost son, comes home, there's celebration. We're going to have a party because that which was dead is alive, that which was lost found. I think you remember me sharing this story a few weeks ago. When Coleman was six or seven years old, we went into the academy uh, sporting goods store. You remember this? And uh, I went over with Coleman to the hunting and fishing area and I was looking at the rods and reels and all the tackle and he was standing right here. And I'm picking things up and looking them over and I look down and he's gone and I didn't know where he was but at first I wasn't really that scared I had a little bit of that angst in my heart you know but I wasn't totally terrified just yet so, so I just started saying you know Coleman hey bud where are you and I went an aisle this way and an aisle that way, and I couldn't find him. And then I did get scared. And then the angst started to ramp up in a very real way. And I raised my voice. Coleman! Hey, Coleman, where are you, dude? And now I'm panicked. And a couple of parents that were in the store saw that look on my face. Parents, you know that look. And they said, sir, is your son lost? Yes, his name's Coleman. He's this tall. He's got blonde hair. And they're now calling, Coleman. And now I'm running. I'm running around the store. And Coleman had wandered off to the toy section near the bicycles, which is the complete opposite side of the store. But 40 seconds, maybe, is how long he and I were separated and how long my son was lost. But look here. The moment that I saw him across the room, I wasn't mad at Coleman. 
Some of you are so convinced you've got the wrong idea of God. You think you've wandered away. You're covered in slop. Your life's a mess. It's cost you everything. But look here. He's not mad. I scooped him. Rand has scooped him up. I'm emotional. I'm crying. I got my arms wrapped around him. Again, 40 seconds we've been lost. And I wrapped him up. And I was like, man, I'm so glad you're found. Don't tell your mom. I'm so glad you're home. I'm so glad you're back. We should celebrate. How much more does our Heavenly Father celebrate when you and I, who have been lost for eternity, the Bible says dead in our trespasses and sins, get found. And so look, everybody in this room, every one of us, you are one of two people. Either you are the one who is lost, and you need to admit that and recognize that so that you can be ready to be found, or you have been found and you know what the reunion is like. And as the other parents joined in the search party, God has called you and I to jump in as well. And so he's saying, JR, I'm calling you, you've been saved. And now it's time for you to go and be a part of the search party as God saves others. Ben, you've been reconciled to God. So jump in, grab a flashlight, and let's go find the ones that are still missing. Jeff, he saved you, he changed you. And so now he's invited you in. Let's go find the ones that need to be saved. Keenan, this is your job. This is your opportunity. This is your chance. Wes, this is what he's invited you and I to do. And listen, if you are the one who is still lost, he's not mad. It's a celebration that is waiting to happen. And so I am pleading with you for the last time. I am pleading with you that if you are far from God, that today you might come to yourself wherever you are. You think, Pastor, you have no idea what I've done. No, but Jesus knows every bit of it. I can't wait to see how he's going to write redemption on the other side of it. So I'm, I'm pleading with you. If you are the one, our church has been praying for you. We've been praying for you. And I'm, I'm pleading with you today to come home. To come home. God's on the porch. He's been looking. And we're yelling in the dark so that you might be found. And if you have been found, then God's invited you into the search party. And you've been called to participate in seeing others rescue. Remember what we said a few weeks ago? Son of Man has come to seek and to save the lost. You either are the one or you're on the search party seeking after the one. But everybody has an opportunity to play. So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to pray and when I say amen, we're going to have an opportunity for worship and response. And I'm just guessing based on the number of you that have been wiping tears away that you either here today and you are the one or God has burdened you for the one. And so our staff and spouses are going to be here at the front of the room. And if you would trust us enough that if you are far from God, that you might come and let us share with you the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
that you might let us remind you that God sent Jesus Christ to die for you so that you could be found. And if God has given you the name of a one, then come and let us pray with you about who that is in your life. Why? Because the shepherd goes after the sheep. The woman finds the coin and the dad stands on the porch waiting for the prodigal lost son to come home. You either are the one or you need to be about the business of finding that one. But either way, God's invited all of us to play. Let's pray. Father, in Jesus' name, I thank you for who you are and I thank you for what you've done. God, I thank you for this church family. I thank you for the ways that they have been obedient and ministering so faithfully right here where we are. Lord Jesus, I pray right now in this room, I just believe with all of my heart that there are some here today who are far from you. So Lord, remind them. Remind them. You're not mad. There's a celebration waiting for them to come home. God, give us the courage to be obedient and to respond. We love you. We can't do this apart from you. We acknowledge helplessness without you. So speak to us now in Jesus' precious name we pray.